Welcome to DeFi by Design, where we talk all things blockchain and cryptocurrency, while striving to educate, empower, and enrich. Welcome back to the DeFi by Design podcast brought to you by The Rollup, a media and education company that provides high quality, actionable insights and information on all things Layer 2s, Rollups, DeFi, scaling solutions, new protocols, juicy alpha, and insightful research. We're excited to share with you the latest trends and development in the DeFi space so you can stay informed and ahead of the curve. Without further ado, we will jump right into this episode with a brief update on some of our current sponsors. Buffer Finance is a non-custodial, exotic options trading platform built to trade short-term price volatility and hedge risk of high leverage positions. They are a leader in the arbitrum charge taking over on layer twos and totally understand the potential of blockchain technology and how it's transforming the finance industry. They are proud to support DeFi by design. If you're looking for a platform to trade short-term options, look no further than Buffer Finance. With their innovative tech, easy-to-use platform, they're at the forefront of the options tech in Arbitrum. Visit their website, buffer.finance, and take a look at all their options. ZKX is a leader in the decentralized derivative DEX market on StarkNet. StarkNet is a cutting-edge technology built to help scale Ethereum using ZK rollups. They understand the potential of scaling, blockchain tech, and how it's going to change the world of leverage trading. ZKX Protocol is happy to be on Testnet and will be on Mainnet very shortly. Check out ZKX Protocol on Twitter as well as on Crew3 to get more information about what's going on on StarkNet. What's going on, Roll Up Nation? Welcome back. This is podcast number 96. We are closing in on episode 100. Um, super stoked to have the founder of the Blockchain Education Network on today. Um, I go way back with, uh, with Ben, the Blockchain Education Network, because at my university, uh, you guys helped me out, uh, got me to some conferences, really got me started in, in the whole uh, space. So um, definitely want to express my gratitude for uh, the work that you guys do. Um, certainly pioneers in the in the education space for DeFi and uh, blockchains in general. So, um, Eric, welcome to the podcast, man. Hey, Robbie, good to be here. Um, common misconception: um, I'm actually not the founder. I've been running it for five years, but uh, the Blockchain Education Network has actually existed since 2014, founded by Jeremy Garner at the University of Michigan. I came from the MIT Bitcoin Club, which is how I got involved and eventually became the president of. So, um, you know, there's a lot of legacy with this organization, right? As as you said, like flying students out to conferences, helping students start companies, even just reaching out to the general public and educating. We have, we have over 50,000 50, people that uh, listen to our, our videos, watch our videos, follow us on Twitter, on Instagram, you know, listen to our podcasts. So definitely have a wide, wide reach. And we've affected a lot of people over the past 10 years. Yeah. And it, it's not like a common thing that you see, you know, as, as a foray into blockchain. Like, I think it's really common to, you know, if you're a developer, maybe tinker around on chain, deploy a contract here or there. Um, financially, you know, over the last few years, people get involved just by buying a token and, and watching the price go up and down. But uh, this is very different because you, you entered like, blockchain education network is is a space to, for for people to learn whether you're a developer you're an entrepreneur a student um and interact like with with the landscape in general so you know perhaps we could kind of like talk about like how like maybe your background like what is your background in in blockchain and then ultimately like how did you 
get involved with the blockchain education network? Yeah, it's it's tricky to accommodate for everyone because there's a lot of different kinds of interests in blockchain, right? There's people that are traders, there's people that are investors, people that are developers, people that are founders. So if you talk too much uh, about investing or you know finance or the government and policy, then you lose a lot of the heavy technical people. But if you talk a lot about development or just do developer tutorials, then you lose the people that are interested in more on the on the business side. So I think fortunately, you know, I've, I've had a background in both because when I went to MIT, I was first, I was CS for two years and then I switched to business. So I got half and half of like both, you know, completely not opposites, but like very different kinds of fields. Um, and then even the MIT Bitcoin Club itself was founded by a business student and by a, by a CS student. So I've always been exposed to uh, staying open and, and having a bit of both worlds, right? Kind of like walking both worlds. And so that has helped us with, with Ben, the Blockchain Education Network, to always keep that in mind and to just keep, uh, keep trying all different kinds of education and make sure that everyone is getting what they want out of it. Um, in terms of how I got started in blockchain, that was actually in 2014 with the MIT Bitcoin airdrop. So that was an initiative where um, the MIT Bitcoin Club, before the MIT Bitcoin Club, actually, it was the MIT Bitcoin project. They airdropped $100 worth of Bitcoin to every student on campus. And Bitcoin was $200 at the time. So every student got $100 worth of Bitcoin just to like get started and, and try to, like, you know, hopefully a spark interest of what is this Bitcoin thing. Half a Bitcoin. Yeah, half a Bitcoin. Half a Bitcoin every student. Yeah. $100. Yeah. So, I mean, if you just held, you know, that, that's a pretty that's a pretty nice airdrop. Could have paid tuition for like at least a year. Um, oh, semester maybe. But um, yeah, that that's quite a way for, for people to get involved. And I remember at the University of Florida, we did like kind of similar stuff where we would do like kind of like an open bar. We would airdrop people Bitcoin and then they would have to use the Bitcoin to pay for a drink at the bar so like the drinks were sponsored we would pay for them but they got you know it was it, it was uh starting to build kind of the familiarity with using a qr code seeing a transaction confirm and then you're like okay that's like your your credit card getting approved and, and you're good to go um which i think is is just kind of in the direction that we're heading like um with using tokens as a currency like you know what what is what is your take like on on where we're going like is are we headed towards like a multi-currency world um like how do you see uh like digital currencies playing a role in the future of of commerce yeah i think my interest in blockchain have always been um beyond using blockchain or using tokens or as currency um the first project that i worked on was at the mit media lab which was actually tokenizing renewable energy credits and also tokenizing green energy investing in microgrids. So that was like, I mean, that was more using tokens to represent, you know, for every kilowatt hour of electricity produced through green energy, um, it would mint the token and that token would be a credit. So I've, I've seen other uses. Um, and then after that was using blockchain for decentralized identity. And I've always had big interest in NFTs, so tokenizing intellectual property or tokenizing like event tickets, tokenizing assets inside of video games and virtual reality in the metaverse, right? Or even tokenizing the land um, as NFTs. So, you know, my area of interest has always been like those kinds of use cases. I do think that 
payments is still at the forefront of a lot of a lot of people's minds and a lot of people's developments, right? Like digital currencies. Um, as for that, I mean, I think people have tried a lot with like stable coins because the number one thing that you would want in payments is the stability. But you know, there's been a lot of pushback against that. So I don't know. It's it's tricky. Like if even if the technology works really well, like Lightning Network or Layer Two, like scale ups and, and roll ups, um, and you have the infrastructure for it. Uh, at the end of the day, like if the token itself, like if it's just Ethereum, Ethereum works really well as gas. But if if you're using Ethereum to denominate things, um, I guess you were able to denominate NFTs in the price of Ethereum. But still, right, the price of Ethereum fluctuates every day. So if you want to do payments, I do think you need some kind of stable coin or or you could just wait. I guess you could wait for like Bitcoin or Ethereum to get big enough that it's not as volatile. Then you could denominate stuff in Bitcoin or maybe I guess Satoshi's at that point. but yeah, I think it's an interesting field, but I think that there's so many more use cases beyond payments that even if it doesn't end up working out, that we're all not transacting in Bitcoin, you know, in the future, it doesn't mean that there still isn't a very, very important role for Bitcoin to play as like a store of value or as like, or for blockchain to play as like a decentralized ledger where we keep track of other assets. Yeah. Yeah. And, and those those use cases have kind of like evolved over the last few years. Once developer tooling got there, um, the more robust applications started to scale beyond beyond just the, the payment one where like back in 2014, 15, 16, like there was only a few coins out there. Bitcoin was obviously the most well known, but like the the idea of smart contracts didn't really evolve until until like 2016 and 2017. And that's when I think we started to see like more blockchain application. Like we really started to see use cases evolve out of the 2017 era when projects started to capitalize on, on like ICOs. And it's, it's interesting to hear like your, your background in CS and then in business, because that's what we see is like, as the, the combination in most of these applications, like, at the infrastructure level, a lot of it is software, but then you have almost like software um, secured by business because of the econ- economic incentives that keep the system running. Um, obviously, Bitcoin is proof of work. Ethereum is proof of stake. So there's there's lots of like like combinations of elements that keep a blockchain system alive, whereas Payments is just just a very simple use case, and we're now kind of evolving past that. Um, I'm I'm curious, like, just kind of like how how you see the adoption of of blockchain. Like, I guess my understanding is is, and I, I've talked to some other people that have come on the podcast about this. Like, one guy, uh, the founder of CoinGecko, was on just a little while ago, and he was talking about basically tokenizing the world. Like we're going to end up tokenizing everything. NFTs are going to tokenize IP and digital assets are are kind of like where assets are going in general. Blockchain may just run in the background and users probably won't even realize that the asset they have in their in their possession is running on a, on a blockchain. Like where where do you see blockchain fitting into like our landscape of of what we call ownership, you know, do, do you think we're going to end up going into a world where like everyone is, is using self-custody and those assets are running on, on chain? Um, 
it's a pretty abstract question, but like, I guess generally, do you agree with kind of this tokenize the world concept? And then when we, you know, if you do, um, how do you see kind of like currencies relative to other currencies affecting, you know, how we transact on a daily basis? Yeah, I think, I think blockchain is more of a tool for developers. Like we're going to see a lot of these innovations on the back end just to like make systems more efficient, more uh, scalable, right? More global, more international. And then the benefits get passed off to the user. Cause I, I, I mean, I, yeah, I don't think the average person really cares that much that they're, that they're interacting with the blockchain, right? Or that they're interacting with cryptocurrencies, but they do care about usability. They care about saving money. They care about privacy. So as long as those benefits are there, you know, they'll use the, uh, the apps that are associated with it. We don't, we don't need to put blockchain front and center, right? It's like when we had, you know, when, when we had like a new database technologies like MySQL, right? Like people weren't, you know, playing with MySQL kitties. There was no MySQL kitties, right? Or like MySQL punks. Like it was just, what is the brand? And then use the technology in the back end, right? Facebook, oh, I use Facebook. I log in, I talk to my friends. It's the same with blockchain. Like people wouldn't use... I mean, we would because we're like geeks and nerds, right? But, you know, the average person is not going to use a decentralized social network just because it's on blockchain. They'll use a decentralized social network if their friends are on it or if it loads faster or if it's cheaper or if they know that their data is being kept safe, right? That's why people like are, are using Signal. I think like more and more people are actually switching over to Signal. So there is is about the benefit for the end user and it's up to us as the developers and as the early adopters to make sure that it gets pushed out there and that the technology itself is not the reason why someone should use it, but it's the benefits that they get from using it um, that would be the reasons why they start using it. They start adopting it. Yeah. Yeah. And and some of those are the incentives that are passed on by using Web3. Like if you know, I can get paid every time I tweet, you know, it, that may, that may kind of push me over the edge from a web two. Uh, and YouTube is another, is another great example of this. Like, um, like there's, there's a bunch of content creators that are streaming on Twitch, creating videos on YouTube. And then they see like, yeah, they, they might be making a, a, a solid chunk um, based on the ad revenue that they, that they realize from some of that content, but then YouTube and and Twitch and some of these other Web two social platforms are are kind of just hoarding a lot of that cash, and they they provide the service for the the platform and the, the content creators to kind of produce content on their platform, but it's almost mind boggling like how much money these Web two social platforms are are keeping internal and not passing back on to the creators when we we see like a web3 social platform and how that could kind of basically provide the platform almost as a public good for content creators and then that that opens up a whole new just so much more so much more value for the people who are using this on a day-to-day basis to create content and and the unlock of value could bring like uh, some YouTube creator or some Twitch streamer from their platform, like onto, onto web three. Um, and I, I think, I think that is a pretty significant use case that like, we just haven't, we just haven't unlocked yet. We just haven't brought data from being 
like us giving data to these to these web two service providers for free, them mining that data, selling it to advertising companies. I don't. We just like haven't seen a killer app that has been able to pass that value back to the the people who actually have like who are giving their data. Yeah. Like why why, why do you think that is? I guess it was always kind of an intuitive application, like for me that. Like I can basically take back the value of my data rather than give it to a, a web two company for free. Well, I think for creators, um, it makes a lot of sense, right? Like even in the gaming world, look at like Roblox, they take 70% of whatever a creator makes on their, on their, you know, for their marketplace, like whatever assets, whereas, whereas in blockchain, you create an NFT and you already have, you know, it's already supported by all the marketplaces. Uh, I mean, then there's a question if so they could, they can delist you if, if, you want if they want but but no matter what right it exists on chain so you can go sell it on a different marketplace um maybe and and the fees right the the royalties or the fees for the marketplace are usually done at the marketplace level not at the contract level so if i mint my own nfts first of all if i create my own assets on like roblox then i have to sell it on the roblox server right or the roblox marketplace but if i mint my own nfts and OpenSea is taking 7.5% fees, then I'll go to a different marketplace like Blur or LooksRare where they're selling it maybe for zero fees or whatever. So there's a lot more freedom for small creators, not only to, to create assets, but also to get it in the hands of their users. You know, as for why it hasn't been really a mass adopted yet is I think it's still very, very early. Um, people are still waking up to the use cases for what NFTs can do. Uh, there's also the negative reputations, right? Cause a lot of the, a lot of the, the, the people love covering the controversy. So like the NFTs that got the most attention were the scams, not the, uh, people that were using NFTs for like really cool things, like to, to, to have music NFTs that you unlock them or like NFT arts that changes color, depending on whether or not you uh, attend an event. Like there's a lot of really cool use cases that mm-hmm. we've seen people do with NFTs and artists have definitely been using it in interesting ways to uh, connect with with fan I, th- I think fan engagement is a big untapped use case uh for what nfts can be doing yeah yeah that 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 there's a couple cool ones that that you mentioned that we just like haven't quite seen yet and it, it's almost like the 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 technologists are the ones that are dipping their toes in because they're they're curious like that I, I think that's kind of the point where web3 and blockchain applications are is We've we've gotten the curious people in to like look around, see what's up, and see what they you know see what they like about it. But we haven't gotten the pragmatists yet. Like, there's not a pragmatic application that makes sense to convert some user of a Web two application into Web three. Um, the content creators are almost there. Um, there's like some some cool uh, applications, like you're saying, for events and ticketing and fans, but just the general purpose application, like a social media application. We just haven't seen it crack uh, like the monopoly that uh, that Facebook, YouTube, like these web two companies have on social media. Um, so I, I think, you know, the curious content creators are going to have an edge. Anyone who, who starts to tinker around, if you're curious enough, curious enough to tinker around with lens protocol or some of these other web three social media platforms, like they'll have an edge when the use cases do convert the pragmatists. Uh, Switching gears a little bit, um, 
what would you suggest to a student who, you know, is a little bit skeptical because of the controversy that they've may, maybe heard on mass media? Um, you know, what, what would you suggest to a student about how they should enter this space? Well, I think that, uh, I mean, the media is skeptical of everything, right? Like you, you show them virtual reality and it's, oh, we're all going to be in the matrix. You show them crypto and it's like, oh, it's all scammers. You show them AI and it's, oh, there's a Terminator or all the AI overlords, right? Like if it was up to the media, we'd all be like playing with sticks and riding horses. Like there's no, you can't do technological advancement that way. But I think that, you know, you re read into it yourself, right? Like read people's white papers, look at the technology, look at like, I, you know, I've seen the, I think like some of the smartest minds that we have are, are uh, working in blockchain, right? Even, even um, for a long time, like I've seen like professors like entering and, and doing research and, and creating projects out of the research, starting companies out of the research. You know, for a student getting into the space, there's an opportunity here that because it's so new, you can very quickly get to the edge, the bleeding edge of it. And you can very quickly make a name for yourself by doing something really, really crazy, right? Like either minting your own NFTs or doing your own DAP or writing your own smart contract or... Uh, I think we'll touch upon this a little bit later, getting involved in governance. That's a whole other use case. Another side of blockchain is the DAOs, is using blockchain to coordinate public opinion or public or coordinate like polls and get people's voice to be heard and then use that to make actionable decisions. And that's something that is also seeing a lot of development and is probably going to be one of the leading use cases of blockchain. Yeah. Yeah. Let, let's dive into the governance part of it because um, that was one of the one of the main like uh like really just a real sticking point for universities especially recently um there's been ton of tons of universities that have gotten delegations from like A16Z delegated a million uh optimism tokens to like seven delegates six of which were universities um and i think you guys played a played a role in that um could you could you talk about like what the the trend for uh, delegated democracy is, um, and kind of like what, what your role is. So, yeah, we, we talked with A16Z in 2021, uh, to do some delegations to some university clubs. So, uh, Harvard law school and blockchain at Berkeley had already had theirs. So we hosted an event inside of Decentraland actually, um, with in partnership with Decentraland University where we brought in Berkeley and Harvard to give a presentation to other clubs on how to be a good Unisoft delegate. And then the clubs that expressed interest, we intro, did a little intro email to A16Z, and then they hit it off with the clubs that they, they thought uh, had enough uh, time to put towards this initiative to do those delegations. So we saw a lot more delegations come through um, that quarter. And so now, you know, different clubs have different uh, uni token delegations and they started participating more in governance. And I think that's a great initiative for students to be involved in, right? Like being able to put on your resume that, that you, you participated in a proposal or you created a proposal or you made your thoughts on it, you wrote a report on it. And then at the end of the day, right, it, it doesn't matter whether it passed or not, but if it did pass, then wow, it's like actually impacted the entire ecosystem. And this is Uniswap is a project that manages billions of dollars. So it is a very powerful one thing for it to have as a student, I think it also represents something in terms of how we're going in terms of, uh, of democracy. Like, I think that there's one thing to just have token weighted voting where everybody has the token and therefore they get the vote and then their vote is represented by the amount of tokens they owe, right? That's kind of like the base level of like how DAOs have been. 
which is good in a lot of ways. Because if you have a big stake in the project, then you're probably going to vote in the direction that you want it, that, that is good for the project. But I think there's also delegation, which is very important. Because even if you have, even if you're like one of the largest stakeholders, maybe you don't know what's best for the project, you don't have time. So being able to delegate is very important to, you know, picking a representative that you like and you trust. Um, and then the same on the delegate representative side, that maybe you don't have a lot of funds to buy into the token, but you're very smart with governance or you have a lot of experience with it. So being able to rally other people behind you and to get token delegations, I think is all around a, a great feature. And then lastly, um, that even if the, well, I don't remember the third part, but I'm able to remember it like in a minute. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, looking at it from, from the token holder standpoint, of getting like a really convicted group of group of people who are interested in making an impact on this protocol it it's almost a no-brainer to delegate some of these tokens and involve more like people in terms of these university groups to act as like a, a lobbyist for the protocol um and i think it's i think it's also very clearly a benefit for the university group like this is almost one of the best internships that you can get which is actually permission permissionless. Like y- you don't really need to go apply for an internship. I mean, maybe it's it's similar, but if you can get some delegation and build it up in a certain protocol, and, and you can act with you know maybe millions of dollars in tokens that that token holders delegate to you, you're making a significant impact on a very like robust industry and that is massive for, for a student's resume. So it, it benefits the student who's in this case is a delegate. And it also benefits the token holder because they're able to almost diversify their token voting power across a certain amount of delegates and get like a little competition of ideas within their own subset of tokens. And I mean, I think it's very clear, like the, the, the capitalist um, kind of, theory is that more competition is better for like the population because you get you get these competing ideas you're not in an echo chamber uh and it's almost like a decentralized network of people that are contributing their ideas and making decisions about what's best for the protocol it's more likely to advance the protocol than everyone saying the same thing and ultimately going that way by kind of a diverse uh, pool of ideas, you're able to pick out the good, the good parts about one idea, uh, the good parts of another idea, and combine those. Whereas, you know, everyone saying the same thing is ultimately gonna gonna just kind of lead everyone in the in in one direction like sheep. So, I, I think it's really interesting the trend that we're seeing in delegated. Yeah, and I remember the I remember um, the the point. So, um, another key point of of what makes this so different is the fluidity in being able to delegate and undelegate, right? As opposed to like electing someone for a term where now they can do whatever they want. Maybe they don't do what they say they were going to do. You can't do anything until the next cycle. In 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 DAOs and in the way that a lot of these DAOs work with their delegation is you can undelegate at any time. So if if you know you don't like the delegate or the delegate goes inactive or if they're not holding up, they're not they're not uh, representing you the way that they're supposed to. You can just undelegate at that point 
um, and then find a delegate that's more representative of what your views are. So I think that that's a really cool way to see it holds these delegates accountable to be active and to make sure they are participating and they're doing what they say they're supposed to do. Um, and, and in that, in, in a way, right, it's like capitalism yeah. amongst the, the delegates. Cause it's like, I, I want to make sure I have, I get these delegation. I keep this delegation. So I'm going to do a good job. I'm going to represent the people that have delegated to me, or I'm going to, you know, not, well, yeah, represent them in the sense that like, I'm going to do the job that they put me to do, because I know there's been controversy around A16Z telling these clubs what to, what to vote or which direction to vote. But I can certainly say that they're not telling them to vote which way or another. Like you've seen these clubs vote against each other. They have delegation from the same organization, but they vote yes and no on certain proposals. So they are like making their own independent decisions because for some delegators that are giving them the tokens, it's not about voting a certain way. It's more, okay, come up with the best decision of, of what should be done in this instance and then you know vote in that direction. And, and you can tell that it's working because they haven't withdrawn those votes. So their desire is to see project right. to see just the best analysis and the best decision being made, not not being voted in a particular direction. It, it's really interesting to see like how the the model of DAO governance is is obviously modeled after um, a form of democracy where uh, like it, it's kind of evolved over over like you know. Our, our entire lifetimes and just like human coordination in general, we've, we've evolved to this point of like DAO governance where it's, um, it's still these representatives, in this case, delegates uh, on chain representing their constituents, but the clubs have the same constituent, you know, like the token holder who delegated their voting power to the, to these, to several clubs is, is all the same token holder but the clubs have different interpretations of what's best for their constituents and i think i think that is that speaks to like just the level of experimentation that we're able to to see on chain with DAOs, and and it's almost like this yeah like almost like this capitalistic government government kind of uh coordination structure where A16Z is able to like almost set up like like a a governance governance league and have these like competitions between university clubs to see what will bring about the best outcome yeah. for them. Yeah, because you could. I mean, if you did want to, because you have the tokens, you could delegate the tokens, and if and then whichever clubs vote against the way you want a proposal to go, you could just undelegate, right? Like you have that right as a token holder. Right. I think that they're taking a good, interesting approach where let you know make the best decision at the end of the day the protocol needs to survive and grow like that is the ultimate goal and there might be different ways to get to that so they trust universities with right. you know students that are working in policy or do research in policy or spend all their time like doing you know deep academic work to come up with informed decisions to do the research put the reports together to do the analyses but there are other non-university groups too like i know there are individuals that have become very popular that they spend a lot of time researching the governance there's other um you know non-university organizations that have gotten massive delegations and, and they act so it's cool that it's not just like it's not like just a group of like 10 people or like something or a group of 50 people even but it's a mix the, de the delegates are a mix of university groups or a mix of um you know nonprofits. they're a mix of individuals um and then the, the constituents are 
also a mix is a mix of, of VCs and individuals way of crypto whales that have a lot of the tokens. So it's, 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 it's a whole different group of, or it's a mix of people. Yeah. And it allows the delegates to specialize in a certain area where A16Z might, may not know what the best method to achieve a certain outcome is. So they're able to kind of spread their bets and test out, experiment like, okay, Harvard has this method, UCLA or Berkeley or, you know, whoever has this method. We're not really sure, you know, how we, we could accomplish what's best for the token holder. So let's leave it up to these university groups who have the time to specialize on how to bring about a certain, you know, a certain outcome that's best for the token holder community. Whereas that's not really A16Z's secret sauce, you know, like they're, they're a VC, they're an investor. They certainly have a lot of time to do the research, but that's not really their prerogative of as a company. Um, but they are able to delegate the voting power to delegates like university groups who can specialize and, and do the research and, and put out reports uh, to actually specialize maybe in a certain protocol or, you know, a certain, a certain class of um, applications and then put the, that research to work in the, ter- in the kinds of proposals that they put forth in the DAO. Um, and A16Z is able to kind of test out different methodologies to bring about these outcomes. You know, I, I almost see this as just like uh, incubation for what could be a better form of, of municipal, like municipal governance. I think we're kind of testing out like different DAO governance structures. And ultimately, like if, you know, we represent a congressman or, or a president in the U.S., like if we elect one of these guys and they don't stick to what they what they do, you know, take there was I don't even remember his name, but there was some like congressman or senator or something in New York who just came out as like an out and out liar. Like he lied all over his resume. I think he said he was Jewish. He wasn't Jewish. He said he was doing all this stuff. It was just it was just totally random about like him just lying his way through uh, the election process. But then he gets elected. And I guess he didn't technically do anything illegal. So we can't really like unelect him. And I don't live in New York, so I'm not like super tied to this guy, but it just seems it just seems like backwards to allow this guy to continue representing his constituents when he just out and out lied about what he did in the past and that ended up getting him elected. So we're stuck with these people, you know, like we, we don't have the ability to undelegate our vote after someone's elected. You know, if it's, if it's a Senator, it's maybe two years, a president is four years. If they don't do what they say they're going to do, they're still in there. And as you know, the population, we're not really able to do anything about it. Um, so I, I see, uh, like Dow governance as almost like a testing ground for ultimately what we may see in like government politics of, of nation states later on. Um, once we can almost like prove out this kind of model. And I think Vitalik had a, an article about this in like 2015 or 16 called, uh, liquid democracy. And he, he described kind of like how this, the, the, like you did the fluidity of, voting power, we could delegate to specialists in their field. And, you know, it brings up like what is a very obvious question in hindsight, but we, we didn't really think about it. Like, I guess when we were setting up kind of this democratic 
process. Um, you know, why is one guy or this group of like 500 people in the house making decisions about a whole array of different stuff, like the environment and economics, you know, why aren't environment specialists making decisions about the environment or economic, uh, economists making economic decisions? You know, why do we have, why, why are we stuck in this, like the structure of delegating all the decisions to, you know, 500 people or, or however many are in the house of representatives or Congress. Like I, I see blockchain as the infrastructure for human coordination, which enables a more robust form of democracy. We could call liquid democracy, which may increase the pool of representatives from the 520, however many people in Congress to like thousands, if not millions of people and allow all of those people to specialize in one particular area. And then us as a population can delegate our voting power to those, to those specialists for a more informed voter. It's a, it's a crazy thought, I know, but it seems like that's what we're doing in, in Dow governance right now with delegated democracy. And I, I see that as one potential application of, of blockchain in the future where we even, we even heard, you know, there was lots of, you know, what, I, I don't even know, like left or right doesn't really matter, but like people are claiming voter fraud and, and you know, preventing people from voting. Like blockchain seems to give the infrastructure for provably fair voting. So, you know, we have we now have the technology where we could let people vote like on their phone, like we could let everyone vote on every decision rather than, you know, electing people to Congress and only allowing them to vote. We now have the technology to scale governance to that level. And it just seems like, you know, we're kind of just perpetuating the cycle of power in in, for instance, Washington, D.C. or, you know, whatever other democratic nation. Yeah. Um, Keeping the centralized group in in that in that powerhouse and not decentralizing. I think it to the I think it starts population. small, right? Because I think it's you know if you're in power, you want to stay in power. Like what was the what was the issue with the machines? Or they 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 claim that the machines were were faulty. That they're the voting machines. They sued them for it. But then the but oh, then they God. the reporter asked that person like I don't know if it was a congressman or whoever it was, but it was like but but. But those same machines were used during your election cycle. So are you questioning the valid the validity of your election? And then the guy the, the, the was like, no, 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 no. For for us it was fine. For for me it was good. But but for but for the other guy, no, that was a fraud, right? So like people just say whatever they want to say to benefit them. I think we really have to take it in our own hands as grassroots people to just create new structures that are run in this better way, right? Like you could even argue that like nation states are going to become less powerful and and you already see like more power congregating the hands of corporations. So it's more important that this technology is used to build corporations than nation states, right? Like we should be like, and which is what Web3 is, right? Like most of these Web3 organizations, which imagine in the future, they're going to be some of the most powerful organizations. They're starting now being, uh, being, uh, you know, uh, decentralized. So like if Uniswap becomes bigger than NASDAQ one day, and it's being used to trade all sorts of things, then it's very good that they're starting from now having these kinds of structures in place, which are going to be very difficult to remove later. Um, so it's one thing to try to change the existing systems. It's another thing to create the new systems with this. It's, it's probably easier to create the new systems, and then the new systems are going to replace the incumbents 
if the incumbents don't adopt the new technology. That's really the only way to get them to adopt the new technology. Yeah, yeah, I, I do, I do, I, like, I think you're right. Like, you know, we haven't seen it play out in practice, but the concept of creating a new system and onboarding people into this new system rather than changing the old system, um, you know, the old adage is like, it's easier to change yourself than change the world or something like that. So like you can actually build a new system rather than changing this old antiquated system that already has its power dynamic in place rigidly, um, you know, create like this new kind of power dynamic. Um, and it starts off completely, completely open and avoid and people will, will end up flowing there. Um, it's also interesting the point you bring up about like companies already having more power than governments. And it, it kind of gave me, gave me an idea where like there is, there is a lot of power in like the Ethereum nation state right now. And the Ethereum nation state is providing public goods for its citizens. Just like, just like, you know, uh, like in America, you know, the government basically provides public goods like the road or, you know, certain subsidies. Um, in, in Ethereum, there's certain public goods out there as well. And um, the value offer to a citizen of like the Ethereum nation state could, uh, it, it could all out, outweigh like the value of, of someone participating in like their nation state um, like government structure. It, it, it's really interesting. Just like how, how do you think um, the Ethereum nation state will ultimately, I don't know. Like how do, how do you see these nation states interacting with like online nation states? Um, I mean, it's probably gonna be a lot of the, the regulation, right? Trying to regulate it. Uh, which could stifle a lot of the innovation. Uh, but I think that stuff like the Ethereum nation state has done a good job thus far of allocating uh, capital towards things that need development, right? There's a lot of open source development and open source has historically been very like unprofitable. So being able to use Ethereum or use Bitcoin, like even to, to fund core developers that wouldn't make income other ways or to like create committees of people to just do the jobs that like no one will pay for. Um, I think it's been helpful to add a layer above the the base level, which is, you know, start a company that is very profitable in the space and then make a lot of money, right? Like there's, there's other types of jobs that are needed that um, someone wouldn't pay for like core development or core education, right? About the protocol itself. So I think, I think Ethereum has done a good job there. Um, yeah, I mean, in terms of how it interacts with the existing structures right now, it's, I mean, it's been mostly negative, right? Like the government doesn't understand what's going on. So they want to regulate it. They want to ban it, um, as opposed to adopting it and then scaling themselves along with it. Yeah. And, and we're seeing like, like, um, new generations associate more with, uh, online organizations than political ones or in-person ones. Like anyone, anyone who's born now or, you know, going back like 10 years has been basically a child of the internet. Like the internet's existed the entire, like their entire lifetime. And a lot of, a lot of kids, I mean, spend a lot of their time online. Like even, even iPad kids, you know, where they kind of have like, there's like a connotation um, 
where they're a little bit too plugged in. But I think I think overall we are spending more and more time online. So it's important to build these systems and coordinate uh, 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 like provide a system of coordination that allows people to organize together for the greatest good online. Um, Cause there's, there's a lot of negativity online, but you know, we can also build a lot, a lot for good. And I think blockchain, it enables both, you know, cause it enables scammers to take advantage of people, but then it also provides the infrastructure for um, like really robust human coordination. Um, so I, I, I I'm really interested to see like just how the DAO governance structure uh, like evolves over the next like, you know, few years. And ultimately, like if it, if it starts to make its way into, you know, kind of, kind of bring it up uh, something that we talked about earlier on the, on the, on this podcast, like, so I'm interested to see like kind of the evolution of governments uh, of governance in DAOs, but and, and if that ever makes its way into like the non Web3 world. But then if you see how, like, as we talked about, kind of like the world is tokenizing itself more and more, uh, like Web2 stuff is becoming Web3, more off-chain assets are going on-chain, like DAO governance slowly takes up more and more of the assets and the mind share of these, these systems. So I... I could see a world where like we end up dele- like having delegated democracy in um in like some uh like state or national government because if if we do go towards the direction of like okay you know your your uh, assets are on chain uh maybe your equities are also on chain because it's this global settlement layer uh you know the next natural step after web 3 DAOs maybe uh corporations. And then, you know, if your equity is on chain, maybe you, you, instead of a, a traditional shareholder meeting or shareholder voting, you just use your, your, your equity represented on chain to, to vote, you know, as your, as your share in this company. And then slowly we can see how DAOs to, to uh, level to, to companies level to like someone's place in a population whether that is a place in a com- company or a place in a country, they have like this representation. Um, they're, they're represented by something on chain and then they can use that on chain thing for different utility. Maybe one of them is voting, you know, transferability uh, and more and more uh, function functionality is enabled by adoption of blockchain infrastructure into these existing human yeah i I like the um the evolution of voting power and seeing how it's going to change like um uh say like reputation weighted voting as opposed to token weighted voting so instead of just like how many tokens you've held maybe every time you vote in a proposal your vote gets magnified so now you're incentivizing um repeat voters in a healthy way because you don't want to incentivize voter turnout by paying them because then there, there's bribes right, that could happen. So instead of incentivizing by increasing the voting power, now you have a system where the more active voters get rewarded and it encourages people to go and vote. Or let's say if the system is a very technical system, then you, you weigh voter reputation by your voting power, you weigh it by like GitHub activity. So, hey, you've contributed to the code a lot, mm-hmm. so you have a bigger say in what happens to it. 
or um, even like credit scoring, right? Like credit scoring right now is used by banks to determine your eligibility for like a mortgage or for a loan. But what if that could also be used for like making financial decisions? Like, hey, you've you've done a good job on the Avi protocol. You've never been liquidated. So when you vote in a proposal, you have a bigger say because you've proven that you're more responsible with your funds. Um, so I think there's a lot of opportunity. And all of this can be tracked on chain, right? Because it's all on chain history, like the NFTs that people have bought, the, the lending history that they've had, which protocols they've interacted with. And you can bring in off-chain data as well. You can bring in like social media, you can bring in GitHub, you can bring in through all of these APIs. So I think there's opportunities here and I'd like to see a lot of experiments in this front. And I think there have been, and there will be more in like alternate ways of assigning vote in power than your, like your typical, like this is how many tokens you hold or how many tokens you've been delegated. So this is now your, your voting power. Yeah. Yeah, the the participation based voting, um, where like it, it's magnified each time. Um, you, you mentioned reputation, which I think like you could you could put uh, an even greater magnifier on, um, like whether or not that person has voted on something that ended up passing. And if you're you end up voting for the thing that ends up passing more often, then, well. I can see how that 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 could kind of be a self fulfilling prophecy too, because if you if you keep giving the people voting power that you know make the decisions, they may end up being the whales in the system and and go you know uh, kind of swinging the vote more often than not. But I I generally think experimenting with these these types of struct like voting structures are going to be are going to be a greater good. Um, especially as we start to find out which voting structures make sense for certain organizations, something that works for a DAO may not work for a centralized company, may not work for a, a public um, nation, or or you know something to that effect. So, yeah, I, I think the ev- evolution of governance is going to be one that is particularly interesting to watch um, as blockchain kind of like seeps into um, more and more government structures. Um, that's one that I think university groups could have a foothold in. And, um, it, it's, it's one that, you know, we each, I, I think anyone over 16 is able to vote. So, you know, everyone kind of has this experience of voting, how antiquated it is. Um, anyone who it represents like a, anyone who's a shareholder in a company has an even greater involvement in this voting experience. Um, and it's decision-making in general, which I think scales to very small scale organizations all the way up to, to populations of, of, of countries. Um, so I'm, I'm really interested to see how that evolves as, as one application of blockchain technology. And then there's several other applications that go into IP. You know, we touched on, we touched on quite a few um, use cases that are both financial in nature, as well as use cases beyond uh, financial. What do you see? You mentioned some of the use cases that like you're most excited and interested in. What do you see um, in, in the student population? You guys work with you know thousands of students, hundreds of universities. Um, are most of them involved in in this governance aspect, or do you see like some other um, emerging applications that students and universities are particularly? Um, I think it's mostly in? well, mostly it's like starting projects or getting jobs uh, and going to work in, in this space, then I would say is governance after that. Mm-hmm. Um, 
yeah, I mean, most most students are still interested in like looking for a job after school. Like what we've really tried to push for with the clubs has been that blockchain can be a career. Um, you know, that it's there is actually a lot of also interest in like running validators. And I know that's something else that clubs have been doing a lot now, like uh, running validators for different projects, acting as validators or miners. More so validators because the schools are also pushing back a lot against like miners, like using school electricity to to run these miners. Yeah. So that was good. That was good in 2016, but it, not anymore. They'll they'll catch you and they'll flag yeah. you down. Um, but for validators, it works because then you just need the computer right to run it and then a stake. So if it's like a proof of stake validator, so that's something else that clubs are a lot of interested in. But at the end of the day, like we really want to push the students that the idea that blockchain could be a career, not just like a hobby. Um, and I know that's something that blockchain clubs have had difficulty for a while is that students will come because they're excited about Bitcoin or blockchain, or like what it is, or like I hear people are making money off of it, like what's going on. But then at the end of the day, they leave the club because they have to get a job. They have to get a real like summer internship or a real job, go work for a big company. So, you know, if we can leave students with any takeaway, it's that blockchain can be a career, whether you do one of these weird things like be a, a yeah. protocol politician, right? Like run your own validator and make money that way. Or you do the more traditional route of like getting a job. You can get a job in the crypto space, either as a Solidity developer, a community manager, right? Working in sales, working in biz dev. Like there's a lot of opportunities there. Um, for And then both at like the large company level, like a well-established blockchain company and at the startup level where it's like a, a new startup that's popping up or starting your own startup. There's a lot of VCs that want to invest in crypto companies and there's a lot of hackathons and grants and incubators and accelerators that specifically target crypto and Web3 projects. Are, are you doing any um, uh, curriculum in in these universities to, to kind of like further cement the idea that, you know, this is an, an industry now um, and there's there's jobs to be had, there's careers to be uh, had? We have our curriculum industry? online and then we work with clubs to onboard their students onto our, our newsletter and our, you know, our groups and our channels where they can get up to date on everything that's happening. So we focus mainly on the intercollegiate level uh the clubs themselves have done a great job of of setting up you know classes at their university some of them even for credit classes they know you can get college credits for uh, we focus on on the intercollegiate we focus on like let's make these online courses or do these online events or let's get free tickets for students for a conference that you get to go to now and there when you're at that conference you can network for jobs you can network for investment you can find co-founders or you can just learn more about the space yeah. Yeah. I think that it, that is a strategic approach, both for the long term as colleges are a little bit less integral for, for people, you know, especially in an entrepreneurial pursuit, um, as well as just a higher value offer uh, of uh, sending someone, a student to a conference rather than, um, you know, just, just kind of a closed loop uh, in class. Um, so, so as a, you know, for any students who are listening, I'm sure there are students who are listening. Um, what, you know, how, how do they get involved? Um, you know, let's say that they, they do have a blockchain group at their university. Um, there's a contact page on uh, on the website, right? And they can probably just reach out. And um, that is blockchainedu.org. And then for, for any student who is at a university who may not have a blockchain group at that university, what do you what do you suggest 
um, are some good steps to maybe, you know, set up one of these, these university organizations? Yeah, well, well setting up an organization is, is a big commitment, right? Because you want to ensure the longevity of it. Um, I would start simple by just getting, getting a group of friends or everybody you know that is interested in, in learning more and then just getting together on, on a particular day and just um, hanging out and then talking about blockchain or watching some lectures online or we used to do these uh, white paper circles where we sit in a circle, we'd print out a white paper, highlight it, and then we would just go over the white paper and talk about what was legit and what wasn't. So, um, you know, you start off casually like that before you formalize any structures. But if you do formalize it, then you apply, you know, to the school to set up the club officially. That way you can probably apply for, for budget, right, from the, from the school. And that's always helpful if you want to order pizza or if you want to start doing more and more events or meet more frequently. Um, and then, you know, you have your typical structure of like a president, a vice president, you know, if, if you have enough to like do a, a person to do marketing so you can reach out to more students on campus. I would say the most important thing is to have is a successor, because when you leave, I think a lot of clubs don't think about that enough is that when they graduate it, and then if there's nobody else, like there's no freshmen that are part of the club or no sophomores to take it over the following year then the club dies out. And this happens a lot, especially during bear markets where there's not a lot of interest. So if you start a club, especially in a bull market, it's like very exciting because there's like hundreds of people that come, but you got to make sure that there's somebody there that understands that they're probably going to be the next president or that they're, you know, they want to be, they're interested in being the next president because once you graduate, it's going to be very difficult to keep the club alive if you're off campus now and there's nobody there that has already like taken it over. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I totally agree. Um, just, you know, at, from my experience um, as a student at one of these clubs, I was president of Gator blockchain at university of Florida. And we did have a couple of, it was great in the bull market. We were filling up lecture halls, um, had a whole conference, 250 people showed out. Um, but then next year bear market um, and then Corona people weren't even going to school. Um, so it just kind of, there was a lull in the activity and, uh, you know, thankfully we were, we were all able to coordinate kind of like away from, from, uh, the university and, and keep it running, but definitely want to have the longevity and the, uh, the sustainability to, uh, stay resilient during those bear markets. Um, and you know, for anyone who's listening, who's a student, uh, blockchainedu.org has the contact page. You can reach out to Ben. And if you're, you know, looking for more, you know, just connections to other, blockchain groups, um, reach out on the roll-up discord. You can hit me up. Um, I'm sure Eric has tons of, you know, connections as well. And, uh, you know, everyone's friendly. Everyone in crypto is still friendly. Like they, they love talking to people. Um, I'd be happy to introduce you to, to university of Florida, Gator blockchain. Um, and then some of our partners at, at other colleges as well. Um, because you know, more, more minds going out. This is, 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 uh, really helpful when, when you're, especially when you're getting it started. And then also when you're, you know, looking to get more involved uh, in DAOs. Um, so yeah, you know, just, just communicate, put yourself out there and then uh, it, it, it ends up working out. Um, Eric, thank you so much for coming on, man. This, this has been a blast. I do have one last question. We ask, we ask every guest this. Um, so if you were, if you were to explain blockchain to one person dead or alive, anywhere in the world, elevator pitch on blockchain and you know to educate them on blockchain for two minutes in an elevator uh who would you choose and why who would i like if i believe that they could do something differently yeah, like, 
Yeah, like who would you choose to educate in an elevator for a couple minutes if you could choose anyone? Uh, I mean, we did educate Gary Gensler. It didn't go so well when he came when he came to MIT campus for the first <laughs> time. Right after he just finished with the CFTC, he um, he did the. No, this was years ago. This, this, this was, was in two thousand like this was two thousand seventeen when oh, he ago. just finished with the CFTC. He started coming to oh, MIT. Okay. And then he came to these dinners that uh, the Digital Currency Initiative, like, was, I don't know if they were organizing or if they were part of it, but, um, you know, I was there, the DCI was there, like, my professors at Sloan were there, a lot of members of the Boston blockchain community were there. We would do these dinners every week, and Gary started coming to them because he wanted to learn more about Bitcoin. So we all had our chances to, like, pitch what Bitcoin was and talk about it. And interesting it was how interesting blockchain technology was, and so he, he would always say, like, oh, that's very interesting, right? And then he became a professor at MIT, and then he taught the class. The class on like blockchains so were like okay we're doing good doing good and then you joined the sec became the, the, the head there and then just completely went in the opposite direction like the whole 180 like like anakin skywalker turned darth vader like level of so so he was super receptive to like to like blockchain yeah he was super and, receptive and you can see in the in the lectures that he gave a lot of those lectures were on mit open course where a lot of them have been taken down now but in the lectures that he was giving, he was super all about it. So, you know, I think about like, what, what did we do wrong? Did we do something wrong in terms of the way that we, we taught it to him? Because I don't know. I mean, maybe, maybe when you become part of the SEC, you kind of have to play the bad guy because you can't, you can't be a, an SEC person that's like all about it. People will think you're being too careless. But yeah, I, I think about like, well, what could we have said differently or what could we have done differently? Uh, maybe we'd be in a different position because having a SEC chairman that obviously is the number one thing that's stifling us right now is the regulation, right? People are afraid to start companies in the DeFi right. space because of, of how, of the crackdown that would happen, right? Even before they, they get a chance to like innovate. So I think that would be the biggest thing that we could do for the industry is having an SEC person that is pro crypto and is pro clarity, right? Not even pro crypto, they could be anti crypto, but they could be pro transparency at least or pro clarity like okay here are the here are the rules if you want to register with this organization there's not even the rules there. that's why coinbase is suing the sec because the sec is just like you're selling securities it's like we're not we wouldn't even be able to we don't even know how we would if we wanted to right? like there's there's no clarity on it whatsoever yeah. so just yeah we need something there well you guys clearly did a great job at these dinners because he goes on to teach yeah, a blockchain he a whole course, on it, yeah. course at MIT. So, so there, I think there you have to play like the bad seems, guy. Okay. Once you, once you become into the SEC, right, you have to be, because how could you be so supportive? People will say you're careless, right? Or yeah. people that, I don't know if they elect you or whatever, but maybe right, they don't want right. to. So he kind of has to play that role. Okay. Real quick. I'm going to put on a tinfoil hat because there's like the conspiracy that like there was some, involvement between like him and like SBF's dad because he was a lawyer so like there was some inflection point where he turns negative on crypto and the conspiracy is that like like Sam Bakeman Fried's dad is a lawyer who had a relationship with Gensler and it, like Sam Bakeman Fried's father is trying to basically build a moat around FTX so that they're the only ones that get like regulatory approval to offer cryptocurrencies and they end up monopolizing like the whole, uh, the whole production. Like, do you, is there any weight to that? Like, do you think Gensler like basically listened to Sam Bakeman Fry's father and drank his Kool-Aid 
to to basically like uh, usher in SBF as like the only one. Uh, that can, I mean, maybe that can like I think that it would make sense from their point of view that like okay, here's somebody that we do trust, so like let's give him the you know do the to do the regulation right. That's how they think. It's like, well, who who do we trust? And then that person it will be the person that's in charge of like approving or or disapproving like new securities or, or new projects right because that's that's how the government runs is like you elect somebody to be in charge of some department and that person has the choice right which is why we need like this this liquid democracy of of uh, no these it should be these policies should be put in place by committees or by people not by like elected officials that can meet with people in private and then be like okay yeah i'll hook you up with this if you hook me up with that right like they're just, just like everybody else. Like there's, there's no right. one person you can put in power that will not be tempted by, by something. Like the only way to absolve of that is by having like every decision involve as many voices as possible, which is cumbersome in like in a traditional democracy because it takes forever to collect everyone's vote. But in blockchain, it could be instant. Like ping, ping the whole US, like ping yeah. on your phone. With- like, hey, what do you think about this issue? Yes, no, boom, done. Now you have the answer. We all get Amber Alerts. Like we have the we have the technical logical infrastructure to ping everyone's phone and collect a vote. Yeah, like the 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 just like close mindedness to not collect everyone's vote. You know, I thought this. I'm pretty sure the first line of the Declaration of Independence is governance by the people for the people, but it's not. It's governance by Gary Gensler yeah. for the people. Like it's backwards. Anyway, Eric, th- this has been an absolute blast. Thanks for coming on, man. And um, all right, thank you, hope Robbie. To, uh, hope to do it again soon. Cheers, buddy. Thanks for listening to the DeFi by Design podcast, and a big thank you to all of our sponsors for their support. Please check them out in the links below, as well as on our website and in our newsletter. We'll be back with more exciting guests and insights. Until then, stay curious, stay informed, and keep designing the future of DeFi.